Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This is episode number 14, and I'm your host, Andrew Kopian. I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope your day is going well. On the show today, I interview Maxie Misiak, and she's a physiotherapist and researcher from Edmonton who's done a lot of work evaluating the therapeutic relationship and is really passionate about this area. I know this interview is a little bit longer than usual, but I think you'll get a lot of value out of this uh, episode today. Enjoy. So I'd like to uh, welcome you to the show today. Uh, today I have with uh, me Maxi Misiak, and she has her PhD in Rehabilitation Science from the Faculty of Rehab Medicine at the U of A. And uh, Maxi's research interests are therapeutic relationships and environments in healthcare with a particular focus in physical therapy. In 2015, she was awarded the Cy Frank Fellowship and has been evaluating the impact of health research on practice and policy. She's also a certified practitioner in the Body Center Psychotherapy Method, Comi, and has an additional training in sensory motor processing of trauma and traumatic stress. Great to have you on the show, Maxie. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So I know that my introduction didn't uh, really do it justice. So I'd love for you to uh, just give some more background and and share with listeners where it all started uh, for you. Um, well, you know, I, I there's a that's always a you know where do you land when somebody asks you that question? Because the the long and winding road in terms of my physical therapy career um, and then moving to research. Um, you know, it wasn't, like I said, long and winding, it wasn't very linear. So, um, I mean, when I got, when I, you know, started out as a physical therapist, when I went into physical therapy, um, as a student, and certainly when I first graduated, um, I, my main interests were in, in, um, uh, treating athletes, uh, working with, uh, with athletics, um, and probably more an interest in, um, you know, manual therapy. I wanted to be a manual therapy guru, you know, and, uh, like my, my, uh, um, mentors and, uh, and shockingly enough, as I went through my first two or three years working in private practice, I just had this aversion. I knew I probably should do my part A's and I knew I should do my part B's, but I just, for whatever reason, I just couldn't, I just couldn't take the steps to, to, to really dive into it. And as I evolved, um, just over that short period of time, I, I, I realized that I really actually was quite interested in, um, in, in working with patients who had more complex situations going on in their lives. And so, and so, and, and I don't know how that comes about, right? <laughs> you know, um, I was always, uh, um, my, my colleagues in, in private practice, um, some of them would say, oh, you know, I've got a patient who's crying. Can I send them to you? Right? So, <laughs> and, and, and I don't know why that is. Um, but, uh, but, but certainly that got me interested more in that area of practice and working with those uh, types of folks. And so I, um, uh, I then left in, in private practice uh, because I wanted to work in a more interdisciplinary fashion um, with with. I'll call, I don't like to label, but, you know, with clients with more complex presentations. And so I went and worked at Millard Health, probably the most complex place you could work. That's the WCB um, uh, rehabilitation facility here in Edmonton. And so that's where I certainly began that part of my career. Um, and, like, as all of those things are, are happening, um, I'm also... Um, just on a personal growth journey. And, and I, a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, there's this, um, workshop in this, 
in this psychotherapy method called Hakomi and um, you know, it's really great for, for, you know, just learning to understand yourself and your own personal, um, uh, complexity. And so I took one of the workshops and, uh, was just personally blown away by, yes, the capacity for your own personal growth. Um, however, <laughs> what I recognized was that, um, I could, I could see myself applying those types of principles, um, in my own practice, um, to develop relationships with people, um, and, and to better be able to, to engage with people, you know, in a more humane way, um, and nonviolent way. And so, um, so that started me off on that, on that journey of, of kind of this parallel journey of personal growth, but also, you know, trying to really stabilize my skills as a practitioner. Um, and, uh, I would say that's where I really began to start to learn about the therapeutic relationship because Hakomi is the foundation. The foundation of Hakomi or any sort of clinical interaction from the Hakomi perspective is the therapeutic relationship. And then there's the, the principles of, of, I don't want to make this a Hakomi talk, but, <laughs> you know, mindfulness, organicity, um, unity, uh, these Taoist principles actually that are meta principles of being, being in the world, but um, when you're in a relationship with yourself, but when you're in a relationship with other people, um, they they act as kind of uh, touchstones. So um, that's where I began to learn about the therapeutic relationship and setting up therapeutic spaces, safe spaces for people to be in. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting area. That whole we'll maybe delve into that a little bit more uh, later on in terms of that idea and concept of creating a safe place. Uh, for that therapeutic relationship to take place. So, so where did things go after that then? You, so you were, you did the Hakomi training and, and you were still at Millard and then. Yeah, did the Hakomi training, still at Millard, did, um, did a training that, as you had mentioned, in, in the sensory motor pro, uh, processing of trauma that is, uses Hakomi principles, but focuses in more on the body and actual trauma and trauma responses. Um, uh, because I was working at Millard, you know, complex patients, a lot of them either have um, traumatic experiences with injury or have had comorbid um, uh, experiences with different types of trauma. Um, could be sexual abuse, physical trauma in other ways, relational trauma in some way. Um, and so I found that, um, that taking that trauma training um, helped me not necessarily, I, I wouldn't treat PTSD per se, right? I was working with, with a psychologist. And so, um, certainly we worked, um, in tandem. Um, but it, it helped me to really, uh, become very acutely aware of the physiological, the neurobiological impact of trauma and how I needed to adjust myself in order to engage with people to help create that safe space so that I wasn't being a noxious stimuli for them. Um, and so that was really also, I think, very, very pivotal in um, me being able to to develop that that you know safe container. Um, but I think your original question was, then where did it go? From, then after, <laughs> yeah, well, this is, I, I love your I love your story. That's how I just want people to know a little bit about how you know you've moved you know through this clinical path and then over into the research side and now evaluating research. So I, I just, uh, yeah, no, it's great. Keep going. Yeah. So, so then I, 
this is great. I've never been able to talk about myself. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> so, so as I'm at Millard and I'm, you know, once again, who knows why certain things, you know, happen, but I just, you know, began to feel as though there was something else that I needed to do. Um, I really enjoyed being a clinician and, and, and that part of, of being a physical therapist. But at the same time, I just, there was just something that, that I, I needed to move toward that I wasn't quite sure of. And, and so it eventually, you know, kind of crystallized and it, it was about more going back to, um, going back to graduate studies and, um, actually researching the therapeutic relationship in physical therapy, because, you know, I, I mean, certainly when I graduated, um, in 96, um, we didn't really get any specific training, um, on developing therapeutic relationships. And, and now there's certainly more, um, emphasis on that within, within the program, uh, on communication, uh, you know, different ways of engaging patients in that way, using motivational interviewing techniques, that sort of thing. But I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say it's a systematic approach. Um, you know what I mean? Like, you know, a systematic approach, like when we, when we get taught how to do an orthopedic assessment, right? That's a systematic approach to assessing. There isn't, we haven't really, you know, taken that next step, you know, within our training in the profession, I don't think. Anyway, but that's another conversation. <laughs> We've got <laughs> lots another, of rabbit holes we can go down. <laughs> yeah, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so then, yeah, so I, then I, I reluctantly, I reluctantly gave up my, you know, well-paying job and, and uh, benefits and pension and, and jumped into the abyss of grad school. Oh. No security. Whatsoever. <laughs> and, and, you know, returning after what, 13 years of, you know, and 13 years is a long time in this day and age, because you go back to school and I like, there are, you know, searching databases and all of this tech that you have to get accustomed to. And so it was a bit dis, um, discombobulating when I returned, but, uh, but I did. And I am just, it's been a, a fantastic um, experience. I love doing uh, my PhD and uh, have really grown from it and, and I'm really enjoying myself, certainly. And so then, uh, so, so you finished the PhD and then uh, all of a sudden you've, you know, you've now entered this other world where it's, you're evaluating the effectiveness of research. And, and I'd love to know a little bit more, you know, last time we chatted, actually, I think you were just starting your uh, fellowship um, with Alberta Innovates. And, and I, um, I'm really interested to know what you're doing there. Like what's, what's, uh, what's the work look like? I'll talk about another destabilizing. What do, what do I do to myself? Like, <laughs> another destabilizing situation. I just finally kind of get a sense of research, right? You know, yeah. feel like I have developed a certain acumen and <laughs> skill set and knowledge. I'm becoming a little bit of a bigger fish, you know, <laughs> medium sized fish. You yeah, know? exactly. Not a tadpole anymore. Like a, You're not stuck in the basement. At no, I'm not stuck in. <laughs> Actually, right now I am in the basement. Now. Oh no! <laughs> anyway, great. But so, so, um, yeah. So I decided that you know when I, this opportunity for this postdoc um, came up, um, it was just really fascinating because uh, part of what 
has is drawing me or drew me towards it was the idea that um, we need to be able to integrate research into practice, but there's this big gap in doing that, right? For various reasons. I mean, uh, you know, and, and valid reasons probably, right? So, um, so applied for the fellowship, um, got the fellowship, very honored to receive the fellowship. Dr. Cy Frank, um, was, uh, was a true, true visionary in healthcare in Canada, um, as well as the world, he was very internationally respected, and, and he still is very, um, at AIHS, he's still very much, his presence is still very much a part of, and his vision is still very much a part of, of what many of us um, are carrying on, certainly, in our work there. But I'm in the performance management and evaluation department at AIHS, and essentially what our mandate or mission or what we do is is we uh, evaluate the impact that research has on informing decision making, on um, further down the road outcomes like um, social outcomes, economic outcomes, um, health outcomes. Obviously, you know, our patients getting better, our people getting better. Um, but what my portfolio is mainly focused on um, right now anyway is that piece of of that kind of black box or the void of informing decision making and how how does research well I shouldn't say how kind of it's moving in that direction as well because you can't address does it unless you kind of address how does it Um, so the knowledge translation mobilization part and implementation science so that's another research area that I'm getting into with um just with the fellowship as well so that's a very exciting place to be right now um so so yeah we're we are developing ways to try to um convey we're not not trying to convey it we're trying to grasp um how what what indicates that research is impacting practice or that is informing decisions that are made in practice um and so right now, one of the big projects that I'm involved in is working with the Canadian Health Services and Policy Research Alliance. And um, our working group within that, it's a pan-Canadian um, organization um, uh, that's partnered with CIHR and various many charities and funding organizations across Canada. And um, one of the working groups, the working group that I'm on, is looking to um, develop a framework for, and framework and indicators for evaluating informing decision-making within um, policy and practice for health services and policy. So um, if that sounds not too clear, it's it's, um, basically... Agencies, organizations, funding agencies, charities, um, we need to be able to demonstrate to, for accountability purposes, for the money that we get to fund research, or the money that even researchers, for example, get to do research, and that's another area where we're really trying to build some capacity, is in universities and researchers being able to develop their own impact evaluations on their research programs or faculties doing that or universities doing that because we need to we need to be able to say hey especially in applied fields right 
where we're saying, well, we're doing something and we want clinicians to use this, or we want to change the health system. We need to be able to say, well, we actually did. And, and in order to be accountable, right. And in, in order, also in order to advocate for, for, you know, more funding, right. Yes. It's worthwhile. This is worthwhile that you're giving us this money. We're doing <laughs> Yeah. Right? We're, we're delivering great care and there's great research to support that and help us do more of it. Right. That's, uh, and and it goes beyond it goes beyond just the traditional um and here's i think the key it it goes beyond just the traditional metrics or indicators that we would consider as being impact right and that is and those traditional ones are for in the research world publications and grant money <laughs> and that is that is what makes the world turn right in in academia that's what people get evaluated on in their and you know and so what we're we're trying to do um certainly myself uh, with uh under the the wonderful tutelage and mentorship of Catherine graham um at alberta innovates is we're trying to build capacity to be able to say actually we need to go beyond traditional metrics all right we need to impact communities we need to impact health services, we need to impact clinicians, right? And we need to be able to understand doing that, right? How do we do that? And how do we, how do we evaluate that? How do we know that it's actually happening? Right? Yeah. And I think the challenge with that is that there's so many of these touch points down the stream of, you know, from research to, you know, community impact. And it's like, all these variables that this sounds like a well it sounds like a fascinating project but it sounds like a massive project <laughs> yeah I, mean, I don't think this is just a year-long project is it <laughs> no, we're not, the, the, no no it's probably not <laughs> you've almost got it all figured out right that's <laughs> um, yeah we're actually this particular project we're we're writing a white paper so a consensus paper on what are these indicators so that you know, different organizations could can use them and or adapt them to their particular context um, to be able to get a sense of, are we actually using research in our decision-making and does that decision-making actually impact something, right? Does it impact practice or whatever? So, so um, no, it's, it is, it has been so far a very challenging um road with trying to land there so um and i expect more challenges but you want to know what one thing i've learned um over the course of doing a phd um certainly and uh, uh and i'll always remember this as ac an academic um julianne cheek um australian uh, a researcher from australia who's working in norway i'm not quite sure where she's at now but um just a brilliant brilliant person. And, um, I went to one of her, her, uh, presentations at a, at a conference once. And, uh, and she said, you know, I know I get I, the most exciting part of, of research and inquiry is when you think that you have your finger on something, you think that you've grasped it and then you don't have it all of a sudden, all of a sudden it unravels. Right. And it's like, because that's where you just, that it's that moment. It's that, it's that, oh, I thought I had it, but I, oh, but I don't. But then it's like, but you, you just keep thinking and searching. And, and so it's just, it's, it's a, it's a process of raveling and unraveling. You ravel up what you know, and then you got to unravel it 
to make sure that you're, you don't also get stuck in a, in a, in a uh, cognitive bias or a way of thinking or a way of feeling about something. So you're always able to see outside of the box or you're trying to see yeah. outside of the yeah. box. Yeah. It's almost, you got to, you know, keep challenging yourself with that. Otherwise it's true. You could, you could go down a path looking for confirming evidence that may or may not exist uh you know when you're <laughs> further down yeah. the path you go right <laughs> yeah because you want it to you yeah. want it to they become attached to things yeah. right? and that's that's a that's one of the you know sometimes i just i wonder uh, i find it disheartening sometimes you know uh, when i just see in the evidence-based you know uh, debate right you know what is evidence what kind of evidence do we need or rcts the um, the gold standard anymore within um, clinical practice, right? You know, really, are, should we be moving more towards case studies, right, or case study work, um, or or at least integrating that type of knowledge um, to to inform our practice? Um, and there's so it just seems like there are camps, right? And they and they and I. Sometimes I just don't feel like they they want to listen to one another, you know? and, and I, I think I find that very discouraging because I think that that people get locked in and attached to their own beliefs, um, uh, and so I guess I wish it was. Sometimes I wish it was a little more collegial, <laughs> you know. But well, hey. it's, yeah, it's true. Like you, you know, you see this group thing happening, and I think it's maybe I don't know I'm not sure exactly what drives that all the time but I wonder if there's even just that comfort of knowing okay well at least we think similarly so maybe this is you know you have comfort in that that there's a, a cohort of people that think the same way as you do and maybe that just helps reduce some of the anxiety of not knowing um you know the the the, the right path and I think sometimes we we look for that right path and there isn't always a right path with uh with especially in a, in a clinical practice environment where the variables are so so great, you know, and patients are so different that that RCT may not apply per se to that particular patient. But uh, yeah, it's, I know I've, I've noticed that thing too, and I and I, I often wonder why there is such a propensity for that. Well, and and I, 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 one of the things is I I think it's very hard to tolerate uncertainty and to tolerate complexity sometimes, and because you have to make decisions right at some yeah. point when you're in clinical practice <laughs> you have to make a decision right yeah, yeah. And you have to help your patient come to a decision and you need to use the best avail the evidence that's that's the uh, the most truthful the most based in in truth quote-unquote however like i'm not going to get into what truth is and what it is not <laughs> right but but there, there are various forms of truth yeah, right it's yeah. the truth of you know the rct um, there's the truth of what this person's social situation is. There's the truth of what this patient has experienced in the past. And there's also the truth of what, what you've, you've done clinically um, and, and what has worked for you clinically as well in your experience. And so, so you have to, there's so many variables that, that come into play that I, I would, it, it would be comforting to know this is this is the way we go about business. This is what we do, right? And even you know, I mean, clinicians. Um, I just read a. Well, I didn't just read that. Probably about a month ago, I read a blog post on uh, somebody's blog post on. Um, what was it? Uh, it wasn't cognitive bias. Maybe it was something in and around cognitive bias, and just how. So you're a clinician. You're working in your practice, and um, you 
claim that this particular treatment works, right? Um, and there might be evidence out there to suggest that, you know, systematic reviews and blah, 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 you know, that say, you want to know what, actually, this is really not effective, not clinic, not, not clinically meaningful, right? It's a difference, right? But you as a clinician have developed this, yes, actually it does work and I've seen it in practice, right? Then there's also the idea, okay, well, we're doing it. It's worked for one person. Maybe it's worked for two people. And so do we exclude the people that it hasn't worked for? Do we follow up with the people who haven't come back for treatment? Because, you know, so, so we begin to build our case based on our successes. Yeah, not the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily the whole picture. And then when you add in to, uh, to the mix, oh, well, there's a whole community around this particular treatment philosophy, right? There's a whole way of being around it. Um, and we're all friends, like you said, and we, we have some mutual admiration society and we all defend one another. Then, you know, you could see how it can, it can get very challenging to, to bust out of uh, a way of thinking that you've, this frame that you've put your practice in and that you've put this particular treatment intervention. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge though is, is how to move out of that bias that feels so comfortable. And I, and I think, you know, even when I think of my own practice, it's like, yeah, you know, it, it feels good when you're like, yeah, I, I've seen this kind of patient before. I know what to do for a treatment. And, uh, and so you're like, I'm going to do the same thing because it's worked in these instances before. And it's true. You, you know, it's, you just somehow forget about those patients where it didn't work <laughs> and you just remember the ones that it did work for. And then, you know, and again, you know, there may be some, you know, I sometimes know that I'll have, you know, some hesitation to say, well, I think this will work. You know, we're going to, we're going to test that, uh, you know, my hypothesis is that it will work, but it's true. Like you, you, I think because of the fact that there's so many times with, with patients where you do feel like oh, there's so much of this unknown and, and, uh, there's so many variables that you're trying to factor in, in terms of a, a treatment plan and, um, you know, and, and I think that it feels good to, to know that, okay, I, I've got confidence here that I'm going to get you better. And I think it's also part of being able to communicate that confidence to the patient um, that I think sometimes plays into it. At least I know it does for me. Absolutely. And so now we're talking about like various contextual factors, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that, that come into play, you know, and, and can we, now we're getting, we're getting very philosophical here. Can we, because this is something that I think about, you know, I think it's the first time I said it out loud to anybody, but I think. You might as well do it on a podcast. I might as well do it on a podcast. <laughs> Why not? I don't know, but I just said to somebody upstairs, I, they said, are you keeping out of trouble? And I said, as long as I keep my mouth shut, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As you go into a podcast. That's awesome. Here I go. Yeah, that's right. So, so hit me up. What is it? Uh, <laughs> what have you not said to the world yet? Well, I, I don't think I've said to the world yet. What if, and not that this is brilliant or anything, probably a lot of other people are thinking this too, right? Yeah. So what if we can never truly separate the intervention from the, the social component of what we do what if we truly never can do that and so what if the intervention even though we try we try the rc we do the rcts that's what an rct is supposed to do right that's what it's designed to do it's designed to reduce reduce the and, and stu to study the relationship between the intervention and its effect right and to reduce 
everything to that. And we know we can't do that. I mean, you know, but however, we do like to make the leap that we can, and especially over a number of systematic reviews when we can gather that information. Um, but, but I just, I just go, what if we, what if we can't? Yeah. And, and then what, what are the implications of that? Like if we had a robot do a treatment, the same treatment we do, would people get better? Or is that still a social interaction to some degree? Because it's an intervention doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know? And so, so I just, that's one that, that, that puzzles me a little bit because, and then the whole intervention is socially constructed, right? The whole the intervention, the whole ritual, everything about doing it is even, even in an RCT, the whole environment of an RCT, of a study is constructed, right? And influences what's happening within that RCT, right? So, uh, yeah, so I, I just, that's one of the things that sometimes I think about, you know. Well, and, and, and I mean, obviously, you know, this is, you know, what you were studying uh, when you were doing your PhD in terms of therapeutic relationship was really looking at what does that consist of? Um, and, and what were some of those findings that you, that, you know, really were, that stood out for you in terms of, because I know from, if I, you know, recollect, uh, you know, from previous conversations, you know, you actually interviewed seasoned clinicians and, and I think, I mean, you can obviously explain this better, but, you know, looked at some of those different factors and, and uh, salient attributes that were present in terms of those therapists that had that strong therapeutic relationship. And so I just wonder if you can sort of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I did, I, I did a qualitative study, meaning that I, I didn't use numbers at all. <laughs> numbers bad. <laughs> okay. uh, and now there's a bunch of people clicking off the podcast. Yeah, right? that's right. No numbers. <laughs> <laughs> She's a flake. Um, no, so, uh, so I, I did a, a qualitative study that, uh, where I interviewed um, seven patients, um, MSK patients that were seen in private practice, um, and 11 as you said, seasoned therapists, all the therapists that I had interviewed had at least 10 years of clinical experience and at least 10 years of experience working in private practice. Um, and so, um, and we purposively sampled those patients, meaning that in qualitative research, you're not looking for, you know, uh, population, right? You're looking for, I want somebody who can speak to me about the therapeutic relationship very deeply you're not looking for, oh, let's get a, let's get a, a diverse sample of PTs and just talk to them about it, right? So it, we're not trying to generalize to PTs. We're trying to understand a phenomenon. And that's the therapeutic relationship. So we need people who have a sense of what it is, who've experienced it, and can speak about it. And so we purposively selected um, or sample, like tried to recruit therapists that, that myself and Doug Gross, who was my supervisor at the time, that in the Edmonton private practice community, we knew some therapists that we figured to be able to talk about it. And what we did try to do with those therapists, though, in terms of making it a diverse kind of sample, is we tried to get therapists that were working, they all were working in private practice, but therapists who maybe, maybe had different treatment philosophies, maybe, for example, therapists who maybe used acupuncture or different types of non-traditional treatments, um, therapists who uh, worked with patients who had more complex presentations. Um, so we, we tried to, to get folks that were 
you know, maybe had multiple experience or across different types of potential philosophies of treatment, right? Some people who didn't do manual therapy at all, right? They just used exercise, those sorts of things. Um, and so, so we did that. And what, what I found after analyzing the text, so the data, I won't go into how I did that, but I will just hear me now, believe me later, it was rigorous. All right. It was credible. And these findings are credible, people. Um, <laughs> that what I found was that there were three components. So the question, the research question is, what are the key components of the therapeutic relationship in physical therapy? Right? So the three components that I found were, there were necessary conditions of engagement. There were ways of establishing connections. And there were essential elements of the bond. So we have conditions, connections, and bond. And so within each one of those components, then I drilled down deeper and I, I really specifically described, well, what are the element, what are the key conditions? What are the necessary conditions for a therapeutic relationship? What are the ways that we develop connections? And what are the defining elements of the bond specific to PT? Right? So, so it, I drilled down into those each more. But those were them. So, so what would you say then to the, you know, cause I mean, I think this is always the, the challenge, you know, in private practice, especially where you, you know, you feel like your time or quality time can, uh, I mean, again, depending, I guess, which clinic you're in, but, uh, you know, can really, uh, be quite limited. And so I, it's almost like that you have to have this like hyper, like this really short period of time where you can actually create that connection, um, you know, and engage and create those bonds. Um, and so what would you say is like, what are some practical things that say a clinician could, you know, could walk away from this podcast and say, okay, here are some ways that I could, um, foster that therapeutic relationship on some of those different levels. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say, well, give me some tips. Well, right? you know, cause Cause <laughs> I, no, I know, just, I know, I know, Andrew, I know you don't, I know you aren't flip about this. Believe no. me, I know you aren't. <laughs> and I know you don't, you know, like there isn't a checklist, no, right? Uh, no. If I make eye contact, check. If yeah. I say hello, check. If I ask them about their family, check. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like there isn't a checklist of things. No. And so um, certainly I go, I go back to some, the key principles. And, and you, for me, the foundation of that therapeutic relationship are the conditions. All right. So um, you need to be present. You need to be receptive. You need to be committed to acting and understanding your patient. And you need to, and, and their families, right? And you need to be genuine, all right? And foster genuineness in your patient. And so those are, they're, if you, they're, they're the intentions and the attitudes that you go into an interaction with. Those are them, right? Your presence, your receptivity, your commitment, and, and your genuineness. And if you can, if you can somehow manage to, for example, if you're to be present, right? Um, you know, you, you have to be able to find ways to block out distractions, right? Your own personal distractions, right? Um, as well as clinical distractions, right? Sometimes patients just need you to be with them in a physical space for 10 minutes and just them close and, and that you are present with them. You're making eye contact. You're leaning in, right? And that you've actually landed 
in that interaction. So um, one of the things that I found really, really interesting with the patients that I had interviewed was two or three of them made this, this, this comment and they, they basically could understand, they could, they could tell the difference between, and I didn't solicit this from them. They, they offered this up. They could tell the difference essentially between a therapist who was busy and they respected busy. They, they expected their therapist to be busy, especially in private practice, right? A therapist who was busy versus a therapist who was rushed. Yeah. Right? And so the therapist who was busy could land in that interaction. They, one, one patient, I believe, said they, they all, even though they were running around, even though they, they were going from patient to patient, when they were with you, they made you feel like you were a decent human being. Hmm. Like, my God, a wow. decent human being. <laughs> Those are powerful words. Those are powerful words. Yeah. And, this is, and, this is, and this particular um, uh, participant, without, you know, giving still, you know, privacy and, and maintaining this participant's privacy, but this particular participant was a very established professional, um, you know, not somebody who you would think would be a very confident person, blah, 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 but had revealed to me that actually had a lot of issues around, around his body and being perceived as old and being perceived as, you know, weak. Um, and I'm what, listening to this man speak to me and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Really? That's very interesting. And, but, but there, there are things that you don't know about people. Um, and so these, the therapists that he saw um, were able to be present with him and be receptive to, to his needs. Um, and so um, being receptive, meaning the, uh, being like a focused receptivity. So you're, you are tracking that patient in the moment, their tone, their body language, and, and trying to relate to them in, a, in an organic way as the interaction is unfolding. But also receptive in terms of having uh, an open attitude towards how you're going to approach um, working with this patient and, and really honoring what they bring to the interaction, truly honoring it, not just, yeah. you know, Giving like, service service. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I think we, we like to, we all like to believe that yeah. we that. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I know that a lot of times, you know, you go into a you know, patient room or whatever and you, you have your agenda. You're like, okay, I've got to get this done. I've got to reassess this and we got to, you know, we're going to do this for treatment today and I'm going to try to get that all done so I can wrap up and still go back to this patient or whatever. And I think that it's true. Like, you know, you almost have to, you almost have to do a reset when you go in and see that patient so that you actually are putting some of that aside and saying, you know, I can come back to that in a moment, but right now we're, we're like, yeah, connect with that patient. And I, and I know for myself, like a lot of times what I'll do is just even try to ground myself by just sitting on the stool and, and, and just stop moving, <laughs> you know, cause, because it, for me is a way to actually say, okay, I'm here. I'm just listening. Tell me what's going on. Um, cause otherwise it's sometimes it's almost like you can just sort of keep moving in this flow that almost bypasses yes. the patient. Right. And I think that, um, it's easy to do because you, you know, you feel like you're, it's almost like this river that you can't stop on, but I think it's almost you have to sort of step out onto the shore and just say, okay, let's just hang out for a few minutes before we, you know, dive into, because it's true. Like, you know, yeah, you have those patients where I, like I, where you sometimes the whole session, you're just listening to them talk. Right. And, and that's, you know, and I guess that's the question then too, is that, is that more therapeutic, right. Than having given them a new exercise or, per, you know, 
provide some manual therapy, um, you know, uh, for what's, uh, what's ailing them. And I think that, um, you know, it sort of reframes what that relationship looks like. Yeah. And how it can change, how the interaction can change from, you know, day to day. Right. Um, you know, there were times, I remember one therapist telling me, um, you know, she said, yeah, she said, I had a, I had a patient come in and she was very upset and, you know, they talked for, you know, the majority of the session. And finally the therapist said, okay, you know, we're at this point in the session. Um, we could continue talking about this right now, or, you know, we could, I, I, I'll have a little bit of chance to do, we can do some treatment together. Right. And that's, and the patient was okay with that. Right. Um, certainly, but, but it was, it, 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 sometimes I think people also think that if you allow somebody to speak, if you give them too much space, they're going to take it all up <laughs> and then you're not going to get to your treatment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is the kicker, which is, Hey, and let's not, let's not, you know, dismiss that because we have third party payers who are certainly expecting treatment. They're having to document what we do. So, you know, they're, they're, you know, we, we have, you know, situations that are in litigation, we have to be able to document. And, and if every time somebody came in and you just, chatted, you know, chatted, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, you know, yeah. that person likely isn't, you know, I don't know, I shouldn't say likely isn't going to move forward. They may, but there can also be reasons why you're chatting all the time. They could be avoiding actually you know, moving forward in their physical progress, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But no, it does. Yeah. It brings up some interesting points though, in terms of, yeah. How are we even framing those interactions? Um, and, and I, you know, I think in terms of what you said, like around how, how, how are you bringing yourself into that interaction, you know, as opposed to just what is the patient bringing to the interaction? Well, and I think we, we have a tendency, um, with in the therapeutic interaction uh, who knows why maybe it's the power dynamic um you know uh, that i think inherently exists within a therapy and we're trying to a lot of the therapists that i spoke with were very conscious about that and took steps to try to address the feeling that they were somehow the powerful one and the patient was was some someone who was disempowered and had to be passive or or or, you know, just take the advice of the therapist. So they they really work to try and create this this sense of equality within it, where both where both parties were bringing something to it. It was a mutual engagement, and so I, I think sometimes we get into if the therapy if the relationship isn't working, well, it's the patient. The patient's bringing in a lot of baggage, or the patient's resistant, or the patient is burdened, or the patient is, the patient is, the patient is. And we get very frustrated because the patient isn't, isn't cooperating with yeah. us, right? They're non-compliant. They're non-compliant or they're, you know, sometimes you'll have a particular patients who come in and they have a character strategy of they just kind of butt up against everything that you suggest, you know, and it's just... It's just, it seems like it's like pulling teeth to, to try and gain any traction, right, with them. Um, but, and then what I think starts to happen is we get triggered, our baggage gets brought up, and boom, we're at a place where we can't engage. We can't be present, be receptive, be committed, or be genuine, because it's all thrown out the window because we're both 
locked in our in our in our strategies, right? In our characters, right? And and sometimes we we might initiate that as therapists too. Like, who says it's got to be the patient? Yeah, got that's right. Patient, right? <laughs> like, as as a therapist, you walk in, you're rushed, or you walk in and you're 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 in your own, or, or you have a particular way of 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 you know interacting or a character that you go into that rubs the patient the wrong way, and they bump up against you, right? So I think that, that um, it's far more, the ther- developing therapeutic relationships is far more than, than just, okay, what do I need to do to get to this point, to get this outcome? It really is a way of being, and, and it really requires a, a degree of reflexivity that um, in terms of our own stuff, our own baggage, and how we get triggered in interactions, and then what, what, how do we respond to patients, right? Like my, one of my big ones was that I, I never wanted, most therapists would say this, they don't want to hurt their patients, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but when, I'm wor- when I was working with um, patients who had experienced trauma or would be diagnosed with traumatic stress, or I had, I was, I was sometimes really cautious with them. And so because that was triggered in me, the sense of, I don't want to hurt you. I wouldn't engage with them as collaboratively, or I wouldn't trust them when uh, the patient, when, uh, or even trust to ask them, is this all right? Can we go forward? Can we, you know, I, I, I wouldn't trust that they'd be able to judge that. And so I would start to take over how far we would go because I wanted to control that. I didn't want them to be hurt. And so you know, there are many layers to that, obviously, but, but that was a kind of a big realization for me, right? That, that, that was, that was limiting the patient. That wasn't, that wasn't being respectful of that patient and where they wanted to go And that, you know, and I didn't trust maybe that that patient would take responsibility for the choices that they made, right? In a particular interaction, because with trauma, you go down the wrong road and somebody can flare up pretty quick, right? So, so, you know, I was always had my foot just kind of, I was one of those drivers that always, you know, you're driving behind them and they're breaking, breaking, breaking. <laughs> and you're going, stop it. Yeah. That sounds mean, right? So, so I had to learn to kind of um, realize when that was happening and, and um, reset, as you said, reset myself, reground myself and re-engage with the patient in a more genuine way. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, really, I mean, as you're talking, I mean, really what comes to mind, you know, just repeatedly is this need for self-reflection at, you know, at some level. Because, I mean, otherwise, how, how are we ever going to, uh, to know that we're even doing these things if we don't take that step back and take ourselves out of that situation for a moment and, uh, you know, and, and really evaluate how we are, you know, coming to the table, so to speak. Absolutely. I, you know, I can't, and I know that we, as therapists, you know, we hear this, you know, all the time, but I'm sorry, we got to put as much work in my, I'm just going to say it, hear me now, believe me later. We've got to put in as much time with understanding who we are as individuals, as people, because we're engaging, regardless of what, what the interaction is, it is social, all right, is implicitly social. And, and that's where we meet people first, right? You know, 
You don't look at a person when you meet them in the, in the, in the waiting room for the first time, look at their knee and say, how are you today, knee? <laughs> right? You know, yeah. like we don't no, do true. that. And we shouldn't do that, right? Yeah. So, so I think that we've, I mean, other, prof- like psych- psychotherapists, psychologists, they, that is built into their practice where they have to go and they have to debrief with other, with another professional, right? Let's debrief about their, what's going on, you know, or if they're getting caught in particular patterns with patients and they're perpetuating certain, situ- certain, you know, psychological responses within patients. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, you know, brings up that need, uh, you know, as clinicians to uh, create enough uh, personal space and, and downtime so that you actually feel like you have the energy to, uh, to look at that, right? Because I think that I just know, like, you know, when you're seeing patient after patient, I mean, it's, it's almost like, okay, I've just got to get through my day and trying to actually, uh, you know, say, hang on, I'm just going to actually reflect on and take a step back. It's almost like that almost becomes too much. And I think that that's, that's that real fine balancing uh, act in terms of, you know, obviously you have to make a living and work and see patients, but also having that time where you can say, okay, can I just sort of take a look and think on that, uh, you know, on that patient experience or even talking with a colleague about, you know, processing some of that. Yeah. I mean, I think you make, I think you make a good point. And I think it, um, I think therapists who have a penchant for personal growth, you know, like personal, personal growth, not just, not just be growing as therapists, like going to courses and getting, you know, more skilled at certain techniques and all of that. That's a part of, of professional growth. But I'm talking like, who am I in the big world and how, do, how I engage with people matters, right? Not just even my patients, how I engage with my partner, how I engage with my family, how I engage with other people matters, right? And, and so, so I think those types of people, reflection comes easy. Sometimes we're, na- we're gazing at our navels way too much, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but you're know, bumping into walls, yeah. bumping into patients. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're so in tune with yourself that it's almost good to like take a step out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> look up. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I think that that you know so there are going to be some therapists certainly who gravitate to that more i think for some people it'll be a little bit more of a challenge to to do that um and some people just think they're where they're at is just perfectly fine and they don't need any help with with the way they interact and those are probably the scariest ones actually um but uh i think that that you also said something really important when you said if you debrief with somebody right and, you know, this doesn't have to be a big sob session. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to get Freud, all Freudian, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be a big psychoanalysis, but it can be just a genuine sense of having a group of two or three people, um, four or five, whatever, that get together, that have some sense of, you want to know what, we want to get better at these challenging situations with patients or just the way we respond in certain, certain situations. And we have a genuine intention of not getting together to bitch about patients, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. mm -hmm. But actually understand why we're bitching about patients. Like why is this happening? Yeah. What's, what's the frustration and what is that frustration born out of as opposed to, yeah, the actual frustration and complaining about that. Yeah. Cause it's true. Yeah. Like it's, uh, and, and also, you know, I think exploring some of that emotional reaction that we can have, because I think that often triggers our behavior far sooner than that cognitive uh, awareness of that. Right. And I think, um, 
that's that's tough though like that's uh man those things are so visceral and they happen so uh in the moment that's uh wow yeah but you, you know what you have to allow yourself to be human though i mean you know of course of course we're gonna respond to people react to situations. I mean, and especially situations that are complicated or, or complex or, or patients that for whatever reason, their personality, just something about it bumps up against, you know, us. I mean, but you know, I did have one philosophy that I think that people can carry in with them if they don't already. Right. Is that, um, okay. Let's say two, two, two <laughs> principles is okay. is a, a sense of, is a sense of curiosity when you're with people. And I think probably maybe why people would, you know, cry when they were in a cubicle with me or, or whatever, that was because I was genuinely curious and wanting to know about them as, as a person, as a human being. Right. And if I could, if I could, it didn't matter really. I don't think there's, there's not, I don't think that I can say, honestly say that I've ever had a patient that I, that I disliked. And honestly, I think that, you know, even though some patients fresh, I, I was frustrated in those situations to no end. Um, there was always something in, in a situation that made me laugh or made me smile or somehow that we engage just as human beings that because sometimes the reason that they're in to see you, like especially working within the WCB system, there's a lot of different factors that come into play when you're working with clients there and a lot of trust issues and, and you know, things like that. But if you could, if you, if you can at some point just like the person that's across from you, like something about them, you know, then that at least gives a little bit of space to, to open up to uh, some greater possibility. So that curiosity and, and being curious about them as people, but also, Hey, what is, what is it that I like about this person? You know? Well, that's true. I mean, cause I think, you know, that's, I mean, what you're saying is, is really about focusing on the person as opposed to, you know, the problem. And I think, you know, I often will catch myself too, in terms of like, Oh, well, I have this knee patient. Well, no, I don't have a knee patient. I have a patient that has, you know, knee pain but i think that you know it's it's even just in that language that we use that sometimes can can focus us on the on the problem rather than on the person and i think uh, you know if i'm if i'm getting what you're saying you know i think it really is coming back to really focusing on that on the person and and putting them at the center and not necessarily throwing away but maybe just suspending or putting aside for you know a moment you know what the problem is that we need to solve right as opposed to you know, as, you know, cause that's, I think our, our, our standard is to just look at, I got to solve this problem and I want to try to do it as quickly as possible. And I want the best outcome. And yeah. And, 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 you know, I think you also said something there. I've got to solve this problem. I've got to, I've got to, I think when you, when you, we get caught into that pretty quickly, right. Into that, um, because we have knowledge and skills that would appear to be why that person has come to see us. So yes. that, that puts us already in a mindset of, I must solve the problem. Right? We're not going to them. <laughs> You've got a problem. Let me help you. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so, um, so I think that, that I know I had one therapist who was just brilliant when I interviewed her and she said, 
you know, I don't, when I, especially the first session she has with the patient, she said, you know, I don't start talking to them about their injury or even, even what they do for a living. Right. Um, until way down, like into the interview, she said, at first, I, I just, I just open up and say, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. Not even tell me what brought you here. Tell me about yourself. And she said, sometimes patients are taken a bit aback. They're not quite even sure how to respond to that. Yeah. What are you getting at here? <laughs> like, what are you? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I thought I came here and, and, but, but she, she believes that what that what it does ultimately is she she connects and and here's the kicker is that if we can engage that patient as a human being and as a person first it also helps us calm down right mm, yeah. and become people so yeah. it's not just about the patient it's about how how we reciprocally respond to a human interaction right and how that shifts our mentality then as we go forth but as back to what she was saying she was saying that that she thinks that, that if, if she can just, you know, begin to know a person for who they are, um, that it actually helps put them at ease. And then when, when they do go to talk about the sore knee or the sore ankle or whatever it may be, that that person's more at ease and can actually offer up more in terms of, of the therapeutic aspect of it, why they're there, than they would if it was just, okay, so what movies bother you? What do you do for a living? What can't you do? What can you do? Hospital history, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know? So, I mean, that's her, her philosophy. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, in terms of touching what, you know, you had said on, I said earlier about, you know, that in school, you know, sort of more there's a lack of this systemization of around soft skill development and how you're starting to see some of that change and um but i think it's it's you know you come out of school with such a sense of like i need the the, the hard technical skills because you feel so inadequate and i think that you know as you start to practice more you realize how important the soft skills are to augment and, and reinforce what you're able to do you know professionally but i think it's it's yeah you definitely can't look at one without the other. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, just even in our conversations, I, you know, I think it just reinforces how powerful that, that therapeutic relationship is. Well, and let's not, okay. First, I'm just going to say one thing. Well, I'm going to say two things. The first thing I'm going to say is that the soft skills are the hard skills, mm. right? I can practice an assessment on anybody. I can, I can visualize an assessment. I can, you know, I can, I can practice that. It's harder to practice that ways of relating because it's so organic. Like I said, there's no checklist of things to do. You have to be responsive, um, you know, and be able to, to read. So it, it is, the, I think soft skills are the hard skills. When we're in school, you know, there's, there's novice, right? And, and yeah, you want to be safe. You want to make sure that, that you're not going to hurt people. And that you're you're not going to miss something really important, right? Um, and um, and and so I think that that that's really important. But that over certainly over time, you start to develop that sense of of relating with people. And I don't think that we can discount that actually the body is a pivot point for developing relationships. All right, we connect to our patients. That's why they're there. They're not there for psychoanalysis. They're not there to talk about their weekend. Ultimately, they're there because they have a physical issue 
that they need help moving forward with, right? And so the body, like new grads, you can certainly, there are ways of connecting through the body, being thorough, being interested, not just glossing over patients, digging deeper into what's going on, acknowledging when patients come in and they're sore, not discounting that or not becoming defensive when somebody comes in and says they're sore, but acknowledging that and trying to look for reassessing, look for a reason why. Patients want that. And that is connecting. That the, in and of itself, it, the therapeutic relationship isn't devoid of, of attending to the patient and their physical yeah, yeah, needs. Yeah. The body is a part of it. And often what we're doing in relationship with people is my, my big high level 50,000 foot philosophy is that we are helping patients return to their bodies, right? We're helping them drop back into their bodies. Many patients, you know, the majority that we see, maybe elite athletes, elite athletes, maybe we want them to not be so into their bodies. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, for the majority of people, and, and when you have an injury, an injury is a trauma, you start to lose your sense of that part of you. And we're essentially, in my mind, helping our patients become aware, of, develop a relationship with their bodies, develop a relationship with that injured body part, right? And, and so we're developing in that, in that pursuit, we are developing therapeutic relationships through that. Yeah. No, great point. Great point. Maxie, we, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour or two. And we sometimes do. Yeah, well, we, that's true. We do. So we may have to, uh, you know, pick up uh, the conversation again here soon. But it's been fantastic having you on the show. And I think that, um, you know, I think this is such a, such a broad topic and such a deep topic because I think there's so many different facets that we could touch on and also go really deep on. Um, and, I, and I love the, you know, I love this conversation. And I think that... Uh, you know, I'm really hoping that people are, uh, have enjoyed it as well as as much as I have enjoyed it. So thanks for thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I I I had a good time. It was fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Maxi. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd love for you to leave a review on iTunes, as this helps other physiotherapists discover the podcast. If you have any questions, topic ideas, or be interested in being a part of the show, let me know by dropping me a line at hello at ignitephysio.ca. Take care.